Hi, I'm Kathy with a K. And I'm Kathy with a C. And this is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Tucson, Arizona. Tucson is located just 60 miles north of the U.S.-Mexico border in southern Arizona and is the second largest city in the state. Tucson was founded by the Spanish as a military fort in 1775, and the name of the city is derived from the Native American Otham word meaning at the base of the Black Hill, referring to a basalt-covered hill now called Sentinel Peak. Tucson is also home to the University of Arizona, which is the city's largest employer. In 2017, Tucson was the first of two American cities to be designated a city of gastronomy by UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. Tucson's food tells a story that dates back 4,000 years, and the city's culinary history is a tapestry of Mexican and Native American cultures. Tucson's impressive 350 days a year of sunshine is a beacon for residents who love the outdoors with an abundance of trails for hiking, biking, and horseback riding. But in 2004, one resident who was lured to Tucson with the promise of a better life for his family found that everything comes at a price. On the night of October 5th, 2004, the Pima County Sheriff's Department received a 911 call at 10.30 p.m. The caller identified herself as an employee at the North First Medical Plaza and said she saw a man wearing scrubs lying on the ground in the middle of the plaza's parking lot. The caller told the 911 dispatcher that the man's chest was covered with blood. By the time deputies arrived, the man was deceased. When they checked the victim's body for identification, they found his wallet in the back pocket of his scrubs. In it, there were credit cards, cash, and a driver's license. Near his body was a car registration renewal form with blood on it that had the same name as the driver's license. The victim was 37-year-old pediatric ophthalmologist Dr. David Brian Stidham. Pima County homicide detectives initially believed that Dr. Stidham had been shot because there was so much blood coming from his chest. But then they noticed there were tears in the front of his scrubs that were consistent with being stabbed. Detectives noted that this was a business complex in which all of the businesses were healthcare related. They found an office with Dr. Stidham's name on the door and found the door locked with the alarm activated. They checked with the Department of Motor Vehicles and discovered that Dr. Stidham owned a 1992 white Lexus. The car was not in the parking lot, nor did they find his cell phone anywhere. Detectives did find a pickup truck in the lot that had been reported stolen a few days earlier. Investigators also found a pizza crust in the parking lot. And Kath, I thought this was interesting. They collected the pizza crust, did DNA analysis on it, and found that it was Dr. Stidham's pizza. And it was a number of feet away. Let's say I'm ballparking 20 feet from the body and there was no car anywhere. They theorized that he went to his car, put pizza on the top of his car while he was, you know, getting his, his stuff. Putting his bag in and Ex stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And... He was then carjacked, and as the vehicle was being driven away by the perpetrator, the pizza crust fell off the top of the car. Wow. Yeah. I thought that was pretty thorough. That is. Yeah. And that's why we're not detectives. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we think we are. Well, we kind of are. <laughs> we just don't get paid for it. Exactly. To investigators, it looked like a carjacking gone horribly wrong. At the scene, there was no weapon left behind, nor any evidence of who may have done the killing. 
When Pima County Medical Examiner, forensic pathologist Dr. David Winston arrived on the scene and observed the body, he noted that there were multiple stab wounds to Dr. Siddham's chest. Based on the fact that he did not find any defensive wounds on his arms or hands, Dr. Winston believed that what they were seeing was the result of an ambush. That actually tracks then with the idea of the pizza crust that if he had the door open, his back would have been to anybody around him if he was trying to put his bag in or, you know, what have you. Exactly. And that was why he would have left the pizza crust. Mm -hmm. Because who would leave a pizza crust voluntarily? I know. (laughs) There was also noticeable trauma to the back of Dr. Stidham's head, which the medical examiner believed was a result of him being in a standing position when he was attacked and falling backwards as he succumbed to his injuries. Later that morning, Dr. Winston said autopsy results showed that Dr. Stidham had been stabbed 17 times, and he placed the window of death within the 12 hours between 4 p.m. on October 5th and 4 a.m. on October 6th. Detectives looked at Dr. Stidham's schedule the day of the murder. They determined it started as what was essentially a normal day at the office. He went to work early in the morning and had patients scheduled throughout the day. The one deviation from his normal schedule was he had plans for that evening. In addition to being a pediatric ophthalmologist, Dr. Stidham was also an adjunct professor at the University of Arizona College of Medicine. And that night, he was giving a lecture to a group of U of A medical students. According to Detective Sergeant Brad Faust, who was the supervisor of the Pima County Sheriff's Homicide Unit, The medical students met at Dr. Stidham's office at 6 p.m. for a lecture and presentation, and Dr. Stidham ordered pizza for everyone. It wrapped up at 7 p.m. with everyone leaving shortly thereafter. Detectives learned Dr. Stidham left at 7.24 p.m. because that is when the office alarm was engaged. The 911 call came in three hours later at 10.30 p.m. Investigators tried calling Dr. Stidham's wife, Daphne, But when there was no answer, they went to the Stidham house to deliver the tragic news. When they knocked on the door around 2 a.m., there was no answer. After knocking for several minutes without a response, officers broke into the house. So, Kath, I did not read this anywhere, but I am assuming they believe they were justified in breaking into the house to see if she was okay as well. Right, because they don't know what happened to Dr. Stidham. They don't know why he was targeted, and maybe somebody was going to go after the family. Officers found Daphne asleep in her bedroom, and when they woke her up, the first question out of her mouth was, has my husband been shot? The detectives thought it was an unusual response and asked why she thought that. Daphne said it was because her husband was missing. At the time the police officers broke into her house, Dr. Stidham was seven hours late getting home from work. But she also admitted to investigators that the last time she called her husband on his cell phone was 6 p.m. While in the bedroom, Police also noticed that the home phone was unplugged and they saw financial planning documents on the nightstand. Detectives later learned that a multi-million dollar life insurance policy was taken out on Dr. Stidham several months before his death and Daphne Stidham was the sole beneficiary. Police also knew that multiple stab wounds can be indicative of a crime of passion. From talking with colleagues and coworkers, investigators learned that Dr. Stidham was a highly respected pediatric ophthalmologist. He and his wife Daphne had been married for seven years and were the parents of a three-year-old son and a 13-month-old daughter. When news of Dr. Stidham's murder became known, many of his colleagues spoke to the press about his kindness and his commitment to his job. Steve Nash, executive director of the Pima County Medical Society, called Dr. Stidham one of the most competent and most caring doctors in town. He said when you find somebody like Dr. Stidham, you just want to put your arms around them and say, we're glad you're here. 
Another colleague, ophthalmologist Dr. Bradley Schwartz, who shared a practice with Dr. Stidham in the recent past, said Dr. Stidham was extremely devoted to his work and his family, and his death was a horrible shock. Kath, when I was uh, reading about all these ophthalmologists, it reminded me of a story. My sister had to have a corneal transplant when she was in college. So she and my mom go to the doctor and the doctor says, okay, you know, you're going to need to have a transplant. We have to get a donor. And my mom says, well, can her grandmother donate a cornea? And the doctor says, is she alive? And my mom says, yes. (laughs) And the doctor goes, well, does she mind going blind? (laughs) So, So my sister comes home from the appointment and tells me the story and I could not stop laughing. We are like, hold still, Grandma. This is only going to hurt but a moment. <laughs> no, no, you don't need to see anything from now on. You've seen it all. Right. <laughs> exactly. The Arizona Daily Star quoted Dr. Stidham's widow, Daphne, as saying that he cherished family time and they would picnic or ride bikes together almost every weekend. Daphne described her husband as being a gentleman and a saint, as well as caring, supportive, and strong. According to an episode of Solved entitled An Eye for Murder, Pima County Sheriff's Homicide Detective Chris Hogan said their first step was to locate Dr. Stidham's white Lexus. The department sent out a nationwide BOLO alert, but focused specifically on the surrounding agencies. They also contacted Dr. Stidham's cell phone provider to see if they could help detectives find the missing phone. Fortunately, the company was able to determine that the phone was still charged and turned on, so they would be able to ping the phone in order to locate it. 20 deputies were immediately sent to the area where Dr. Stidham's cell pinged. During their search, one of the police officers came across Dr. Stidham's Lexus parked in the carport of an apartment building, and the cell phone was in the car. As detectives approached the car, they could immediately see that the car had been at the crime scene. There was blood on the outside of the driver's door, blood on the interior of the driver's door and driver's seat, and there was blood scattered throughout the car. Detectives knew that this meant Dr. Stidham was attacked while the driver's door was open and he was getting into the car. They conducted surveillance on the vehicle just in case somebody came back for the Lexus, but after several hours with no one approaching, the car was impounded and sent to the crime lab. This was a huge story in Tucson, and there was substantial media coverage. The more the public learned about Dr. Stidham, the more they struggled to make sense of the crime. Dr. Stidham was incredibly intelligent and incredibly successful. He grew up in Texas and went to college at Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, where he graduated summa cum laude. He was accepted at Harvard Medical School, where he received his medical degree and graduated Phi Beta Kappa. Phi Beta Kappa is a national honor society that was founded back in the late 1700s, and it inducts only the best of the best students in the arts and sciences. So it's a huge honor and a huge accomplishment to be inducted into this honor society. Dr. Stidham moved to Tucson three years before his death when he was recruited by Dr. Bradley Schwartz to join his ophthalmology practice as a partner. Dr. Stidham's wife said this job offer was the culmination of a lifelong dream. He fit in well with the new practice, he had a stellar reputation, and was adored by his patients, office staff, and the medical community. Now, as a result of the never-ending media coverage, tips started coming into the Pima County Sheriff's Office, and one name kept coming up in the tips, Dr. Bradley Schwartz. In fact, on the night of the murder, 
Dr. Stidham's wife, Daphne, told investigators Schwartz was her husband's only enemy. Following the conversation with Dr. Stidham's wife, Daphne, Pima County Sheriff's detectives spoke with Dr. Schwartz and determined that he had a rock-solid alibi and he was eliminated as a suspect almost immediately. Lead homicide detective Jill Murphy said Dr. Schwartz was having dinner with a date at a local Thai restaurant during the time the murder occurred. Schwartz's date, Lisa Goldberg, along with the restaurant staff, confirmed the time that they were at the restaurant. Schwartz was also able to produce his American Express receipt that confirmed the time they left. But within a week of the murder, what investigators were learning from the tip line made them reconsider Schwartz as a possible suspect. Women who had never met each other kept calling the police with the same story about Dr. Schwartz's explosive anger and his obsessive nature. It was becoming clear that the respected eye surgeon was also a ladies' man, dating a number of women at the same time, all unbeknownst to one another. One woman who called police was Lourdes Lopez, a former prosecutor with the Pima County Attorney's Office. Ms. Lopez told police that she was engaged to Dr. Schwartz, but the relationship ended a couple years prior. Ms. Lopez said that when she began dating Dr. Schwartz in December of 2000, she discovered that he had been abusing the painkiller Vicodin for at least six months and had been to drug treatment previously for a prescription drug addiction. According to Detective Sergeant Faust, Dr. Schwartz had a legitimate shoulder injury several years prior and as a result developed an addiction to Vicodin. To feed his addiction, he would write prescriptions for Lourdes Lopez and his office manager. They would then give him the pills. Lourdes Lopez said she did not realize the extent of his addiction until he began asking her monthly to pick up Vicodin prescriptions that he had sent to the pharmacy in her name, which she did. Dr. Schwartz's pattern of writing Vicodin prescriptions came to the attention of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency. In December 2001, they raided his and Dr. Stidham's ophthalmology office. Dr. Stidham had only joined the practice three months before the raid and had no idea why they were even there. Can you imagine that, Kath? No. They don't say anything when they go in, do they? It's not like they're going to explain. They're basically going to kindly move him aside and continue their search. Would they even kindly move him aside? (laughs) Or have I seen too many detective shows? (laughs) (laughs) So Dr. Stidham's wife, Daphne, told detectives that her husband was shocked and speechless when that happened. I'm going to use the word apoplectic. After interviewing Lourdes Lopez, Ema County detectives did a deeper dive. They discovered Dr. Schwartz and Ms. Lopez along with Dr. Schwartz's office manager, had been indicted on 77 federal drug charges that alleged numerous violations, including conspiracy to obtain a controlled substance by fraud or deception and illegal distribution of a controlled substance. The grand jury indictment in 2001 showed the case involved more than 3,500 Vicodin tablets and more than 1,200 Ritalin tablets. All three pled guilty. Now, Kathy, I think part of the reason why she pled guilty I don't know this, but I do know in the Solved episode that we referenced earlier, she actually said that when the DEA agents came to talk to her, they asked her about what she knew about Dr. Schwartz, about prescription pills, about false prescriptions she was writing. She said, I don't know anything. 
and admitted in the show that she knowingly lied because she was in love with him and wanted to protect him. So she told the feds that those Vicodin pills were actually for her. Yes. Mm. As part of her plea deal, Ms. Lopez was given community service and a no-contact order with Dr. Schwartz. A year later, a judge ruled that she had met these requirements, and so her federal indictment was actually dismissed. But the thing is, is that the judge knew that she had violated the no-contact order at least once in January of 2003 when she saw Schwartz. And this wasn't like running into him at the grocery store. She flew to another state and yet still had the indictment dismissed. So it's off her record. I am sure that because she was a county prosecutor, she was treated with kid gloves. Like it was just such a slap on the wrist. And when the Arizona bar got wind of this, they only recommended a one year suspension. That's nuts to me. That's interesting to hear you say that because I felt the same way, but I didn't know if that was business as usual. Now, also to follow up with Dr. Schwartz after he pled guilty, the Arizona Board of Medical Examiners immediately suspended his license to practice medicine and he checked into rehab. So the indictment happened in 2001, which was three years before the murder. Is that right? Correct. And once Dr. Stidham realized what Dr. Schwartz was involved with, he dissolved their medical partnership and opened his own practice. With this information, detectives now saw Schwartz as a possible suspect, but they did not have any evidence. And at the time of Dr. Stidham's murder, Dr. Schwartz had already successfully completed rehab, his medical license had been reinstated, and he was practicing again. So this doesn't really make a lot of sense why a doctor would do this, right? Why would you jeopardize everything? Mm -hmm. Then investigators received a call on the tip line and this was not an anonymous tip. The caller was a woman named Lisa Goldberg, and she had been Schwartz's date at the Thai restaurant on the night Dr. Stidham was killed. Lisa Goldberg told detectives that during their dinner at the restaurant, a man who she only knew as Bruce joined them for dinner. She recognized Bruce as the same man she saw at Dr. Schwartz's office earlier that day, and she knew the two men had met in rehab. Ms. Goldberg also said that during dinner, Schwartz said something that stuck out in her mind. Schwartz asked Bruce, how did those scrubs work out for you? And Bruce's response was, great. Ms. Goldberg thought it was an odd question and comment and kind of came out of nowhere with seemingly no context at all. Yeah, Kath, I was uh, reading about this and Lisa Goldberg was saying that it was odd. She wasn't expecting this guy to show up. So this guy shows up at dinner, but doesn't order dinner. He's picking off each of their plates. Ew. <laughs> I know. So she knows that these two men knew each other from drug treatment, and she thought it was odd because Bruce ordered a beer. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So there was all these like little things like popping in her head that weren't normal. Her radar's going off. Exactly. And she later asked her date, Dr. Schwartz, why did this guy need scrubs? And Schwartz told her it was because he was horseback riding. What? <laughs> Which made no sense to her. You know, I do see a lot of cowboys in scrubs. Right. <laughs> That's a thing. Yeah. This is another thing I thought was interesting. Although Lisa Goldberg and Dr. Schwartz had only been out on two to three occasions, he had already proposed to her. What? Yeah. I don't know what her answer was, but this whole thing is odd. Very odd. Yeah. Lisa Goldberg told detectives that after dinner, the three of them drove around trying to find a hotel room for Bruce. When they found an available room, Dr. Schwartz went into the lobby with Bruce and paid for the room on his credit card. After Bruce went up to his room, Dr. Schwartz returned to his car and drove the two of them home. 
Unfortunately, Lisa Goldberg was unable to tell detectives Bruce's last name. Since Lisa Goldberg told detectives that she saw Bruce in Dr. Schwartz's office, the day after their meeting, they got a search warrant and went through his patient files. The only patient found in Dr. Schwartz's files with the name Bruce was a man named Ronald Bruce Bigger. They talked to office staff who confirmed that Bigger was a former patient and remembered him visiting Dr. Schwartz's office the day before Dr. Stidham was murdered. Now that investigators had a name, they were able to dig into Bruce Bigger's background. They learned he was from Indiana, lived a transient lifestyle, never staying in one place for very long, and had no job history to speak of. He did not have any roots, nor did he have a job in Tucson, and his arrest record showed Bigger was a small-time criminal with a drug problem. So, Kath, once they determined who this guy was and they were able to pull his mugshot, they went back to Lisa Goldberg with a photo lineup and said, hey, do you see him? And she immediately picked out Bruce Bigger as the man who'd been at the restaurant with them. So the detectives then went to the restaurant and the restaurant staff were able to identify the same picture in the lineup as being the person who joined Dr. Schwartz and Ms. Goldberg at the table. And then remember, Dr. Schwartz had taken Bruce to a hotel Mm -hmm. and paid for him. And so detectives pulled up video from the lobby of the hotel that night, and they saw Bruce and Dr. Schwartz walking into the lobby, showing Dr. Schwartz paying for hotel room, and then having them split off when Bruce went to his room and Schwartz went back to the car where Ms. Goldberg was waiting. Investigators also looked into Dr. Schwartz's cell phone records and saw several calls received between 6 p.m. and 7.15 p.m. the night of the murder from a number that was traced to a convenience store located across the street from the North Point Medical Plaza, where Dr. Stidham was murdered. Detective Murphy spoke with store owner Jennifer Dainty and showed her the photo lineup that included a picture of Bigger to see if anyone looked familiar to her. When Jennifer looked at the photos, she identified Bigger. Then, of course, police decided it was time to bring him in for questioning. Mm -hmm. So when they went looking for him, because, of course, he has a transient lifestyle, they couldn't find him but talked to some of his friends and acquaintances, and they said, this guy came home the other day with a wad of cash as big as a softball mm-hmm. and decided to blow it in Vegas. Wow. <laughs> so he took a couple of his luckiest friends and hit the road and went to Vegas. And the police had to wait a couple of days before they could talk to him. And based on my walking around money, I know that 10 grand is about the size of a grapefruit. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you ever walk with me when you got that? <laughs> Next time I will. <laughs> Thank you. And I've got proof now. There it's you on go. Tape. Exactly. <laughs> so, Kath, at this time, the police officers are drawing a bead on Schwartz and Bigger. All of these facts are leading them to continue this investigation in that direction. And any possibility that Daphne, Dr. Stidham's wife, had any connection to his death was totally off the table. They found out later that she had used sleeping pills the night that they broke into her home. And although her first question was odd, was he shot? They basically said, she wakes up, she's on sleeping pills. There are officers standing in her room. They just chalked it up to confusion and fear. Exactly. Now, after detectives heard about this sudden windfall that Bigger had received, they got a warrant to look into Schwartz's bank records Mm -hmm. and noticed that on October 6th, which was the day after the murder, Schwartz went to the Bank of Tucson and withdrew $10,000 in cash. Since Dr. Schwartz had to go into the bank to withdraw that much money, the entire transaction was on video. And Detective Sergeant Faust said that when they looked at the video, it showed Schwartz standing in line at the bank talking on a cell phone. 
So since the bank video had a date and timestamp on it, investigators were able to line up calls that Schwartz received when he was in the bank to calls made to Schwartz's cell phone from Bigger's hotel room. Detectives thought that with this last piece of evidence connecting the money to them, they had enough to make a case for murder. Ten days after the murder of Dr. Brian Stidham, Ronald Bruce Bigger was arrested for first-degree murder, and his bail was set at $1.5 million. At 10 p.m. that same night, Dr. Bradley Schwartz was arrested at his home for conspiracy to commit murder and booked into the Pima County Jail and held on $2 million bail. Kath, what was funny is that, so when the police went to arrest Dr. Schwartz, he was, not unpredictably, with a female. They allow him to get dressed, and rather than put on civilian clothes, he gets dressed in his scrubs to be arrested. That is so funny. I know. You know, he thought he was, like, making a power move. Totally. Yeah. According to the Solved episode referenced earlier, homicide detective Jill Murphy said that when she went into the interrogation room to talk to Dr. Schwartz, he immediately asked to speak with his attorney. Now, what's funny, Kathy, is that when she interviewed Bruce Bigger, Uh she went in there trying to, like, cajole him and be like, hey, buddy, like, I'm your mom, I'm your best friend, I'm your sister, you know, kind of having that kind of persona. Right. Because she wanted him to roll. And he was playing dumb. And every time she asked him a question, he would say, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. And she finally gave up because he's like, I'm not saying it. Like, I have nothing to say. I don't understand what you're saying. I don't have anything to say to you. And that's when she left. Mm. And he did not have scrubs on. (laughs) (laughs) Even though we know he had a pair from Dr. Schwartz. For horseback riding. Exactly. (laughs) So Dr. Schwartz invokes his right to counsel. So Detective Murphy leaves the room turns off all the video and the sound equipment so that he could talk to his lawyer privately. But Detective Murphy said that when somebody has been arrested for murder, they do not let the suspects out of their sight in case they try to do something to hurt themselves. So Detective Chris Hogan was watching through a window. Shortly thereafter, he let Detective Murphy know that Schwartz had ended his first call and was calling somebody else. Since only calls with attorneys are privileged, Murphy instructed Hogan to turn the video and sound equipment back on. Detectives listened as Schwartz called Lourdes Lopez, his former fiance and former prosecutor and co-defendant in his federal drug case and begged her to represent him because by this time she had been reinstated to the practice of law. Oh, because her suspension had only been one year. Correct. So she was working in private practice at the time. So he's begging her, please, please represent me. And she says no. What Dr. Schwartz did not know at this moment was that Lourdes Lopez had already spoken with the Pima County Sheriff's Office about him in relation to Dr. Stidham's murder. After the arrests of Bigger and Schwartz, Dr. Stidham's widow Daphne released a statement that said, I know so many people have helped me. And I am so grateful to all of them. Without their help, I really do not think I would be here right now. This has been my very worst nightmare. I cannot believe that someone could be so sadistic knowing the loving, caring man my husband was. I know even in pain, he must have thought about his wife and kids. I cannot stop crying. Bonjour, parlez-vous français? Me neither, (laughs) despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. 
And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation. They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. So prosecutors realized they had a lot of circumstantial evidence, including a lot of circumstantial evidence about motive, but they do not have any eyewitnesses, parking lot video from the evening of the murder, a murder weapon, usable fingerprints, any hair or DNA. Now, Kath, this is what prosecutors call the CSI effect, or sometimes they call it the law and order effect or whatever, but I think it's most commonly referred to as a CSI effect, where we are so used to watching television programs that we have an expectation that there's always going to be a physical connection from the victim to the murderer. And it's 100% this is the person. Right. Everyone knows the magic of DNA. Right. And so everyone's expecting it. So prosecutors, when they have some type of violent crime and there's no physical evidence, it does cause concern because jurors expect that. Right. So the prosecutors here, they experience the same thing. They knew they needed at least one piece of scientific evidence connecting the suspects to the murder. So they went back to the vehicle, Dr. Stidham's Lexus, and swabbed it for DNA. They had previously printed it, and there were no usable fingerprints. They collected 60 swabs. On one swab, they found DNA from more than one donor, and it was DNA from skin cells, so it only provided a partial profile. But they were very happy because at least they had something. 
because this partial profile was consistent with DNA from Bruce Bigger. On Monday, October 25th, 2004, so almost three weeks after Dr. Stidham's murder, Dr. Schwartz and Bruce Bigger were each indicted on one count of first-degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. At that time in Arizona, a person could be charged with murder if their actions caused the death, even if they did not do the actual killing. So just one month after the murder, on November 9, 2004, Pima County attorney Barbara Lawall announced a conflict of interest with the Schwartz and Bigger cases, and the Pinal County Attorney's Office was brought in to prosecute the cases at trial. The conflict occurred when Lawall learned that attorneys in her office did not immediately report information about Dr. Stidham's murder that they had learned from Lourdes Lopez, their former colleague. At the time, no additional information was provided. And Kathy, just a week after that, there was an article that appeared in the Tucson Citizen that said they had unnamed sources in the prosecutor's office who told them that four prosecutors were being suspended and there were an additional two who may be suspended. They did not give a reason. They didn't say anything like that, but they just said these prosecutors who were suspended or about to be could ultimately be fired. Pima County Attorney Barbara LaWall declined to comment citing county policy and state laws on personnel issues. Now, in early March of 2005, so five months after Dr. Stidham had been murdered, Pinal County Attorney Robert Carter Olson announced that they would not be seeking the death penalty against Dr. Bradley Schwartz or Ronald Bruce Bigger. Schwartz and Bigger were to be tried separately, with Schwartz's trial scheduled to begin in early February 2006. One month before Dr. Schwartz's trial was expected to begin, so January of 2006, Pima County Superior Court Judge Nanette Warner ordered prospective jurors to be questioned early to determine if pretrial publicity had tainted Schwartz's ability to receive a fair trial. Pinal County Prosecutor Sylvia Lafferty and Schwartz's defense attorney, Brick P. Stortz III, made brief opening statements to 400 prospective jurors who were then sent out of the courtroom to fill out a 59-question, 12-page questionnaire that had been prepared by prosecutors and defense attorneys. So, Kath, this is not a traditional opening. It's actually called a mini opening. It's just to give the jurors a perspective on what the trial is going to show, and it doesn't count toward their actual opening. After the questionnaires were returned, the attorneys from both sides reached a consensus on 160 prospective jurors who would be part of the jury pool when trial started the next month on February 28th. So, by Friday, March 3rd, 2006, jury selection was completed. Seven men and eight women comprised 12 jurors and three alternates. 17 months after Dr. Brian Stidham was murdered, opening statements began on Tuesday, March 7, 2006, with Pinal County Prosecutor Sylvia Lafferty and Defense Counsel Brick Stortz taking 90 minutes to lay out their cases for the jury. In an Arizona Daily Star article the next day, written by journalist Kim Smith, Prosecutor Sylvia Lafferty said that she was sure the defense would say that Dr. Schwartz had no reason to kill but that is exactly what he did. She said that at one point, Dr. Schwartz had everything going for him. He had a wife and children, 
a six-figure income from the practice he shared with Dr. Stidham and the esteem of his colleagues. But he lost it all because of his prescription drug addiction. When Dr. Schwartz got out of rehab, he had lost his patients, staff, and his income because Dr. Stidham had dissolved their partnership and started his own practice. Prosecutor Lafferty said Dr. Schwartz was an angry man and his anger turned into a grudge. His grudge then festered into an obsession and his obsession erupted into a toxic rage that led him to plan and conspire to kill Dr. Stidham. For two years, Dr. Schwartz obsessed about how to get back at Dr. Stidham, and he was not quiet about it. He tried to persuade several people to do things that would destroy Dr. Stidham. Defense counsel Brick Stortz opened by saying Dr. Bradley Schwartz was a drug-addicted, unfaithful husband with a big mouth who hated Dr. Stidham so much he told a lot of people wrong and hateful things about him. But, Stortz told the jury, that did not make Dr. Schwartz a killer. In fact, Stortz told the jury that they would probably ask themselves throughout the trial if Schwartz's mouthiness was not simply a matter of the five-foot-five man puffing up and acting like a big man. Stortz said that it did not make sense that someone who blabbed all over town about his feelings towards Dr. Stidham would then go out and hire a hitman knowing that he would become the prime suspect. Stortz told jurors if the state could not prove Bigger killed Dr. Stidham, they would have to acquit Dr. Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz had no reason to kill Dr. Stidham. On the first full day of testimony, detectives Jill Murphy and Chris Hogan testified. Murphy took jurors step by step through what she and other detectives did to collect and catalog evidence at the scene. Investigators theorize that Bigger wore scrubs to look like he fit in with the other employees at the medical plaza where Dr. Stidham's office was located. However, they opined that it was likely Dr. Stidham's lecture to the medical students threw a wrench into Bigger's plans. Bruce Bigger then probably arrived at the medical plaza, expecting Dr. Stidham to get off work before 6 p.m. When he was in his office after business hours with a handful of other people, Detectives believe Bigger likely panicked and went to the convenience store to call Dr. Schwartz, looking for direction on whether he should wait. When he could not get a hold of Dr. Schwartz, Bigger then probably decided he would just wait and see if Dr. Stidham was alone when he left his office for the night. According to cell records, communications between Schwartz and Bigger did not end that night. The day after the murder, Dr. Schwartz received several phone calls from the hotel where Bigger was staying in the room paid for by Schwartz. So, Kathy, speaking about phone calls, Jennifer Dainty, who was the co-owner of the convenience store where Bruce Bigger had kind of hung out before mm-hmm. the murder, said that Bigger had actually left the store and came back just a little while later and told her that he had locked his keys in the car, which had a cell phone. And so he asked if he could use her phone. Jennifer said that Bruce used the phone three or four times, and she actually overheard one call that sounded like he was leaving a message for somebody. And Bigger had said, I cannot believe you are not answering your phone tonight of all nights. Now, the times that Bigger used the store phone coincided with received calls that were in Dr. Schwartz's cell phone records. Under cross-examination, defense attorney Stortz asked Detective Murphy why the Office of the Medical Examiner was not notified of the killing until after 3 a.m., five and a half hours after the body was first discovered, and asked if the medical examiner's office personnel were called to the scene earlier 
would they have been able to give a better time of death rather than the 12-hour window that they gave? Detective Murphy replied that it was standard practice to call medical examiners after all the evidence at a crime scene had been collected and she never had a medical examiner tell her the time of death at the scene of a crime. Pima County Medical Examiner Dr. David Winston also was called to testify. He told jurors in gruesome detail about how Dr. Stidham was killed, but that he could not determine how quickly Stidham lost consciousness and died because he did not know which of the 17 knife wounds were inflicted first. Dr. Winston also testified that his determination of the time of death was within a 12-hour window between 4 p.m. on October 5th and 4 a.m. on October 6th. He told the jury that he could not pinpoint the time of death any better, saying that despite what is shown on TV, medical examiners do not put thermometers in deceased people's livers, nor do they examine potassium levels in people's eyes to determine the time of death. <laughs> Clearly a medical examiner who's very, very familiar with the CSI effect. Exactly, exactly. So the time of death of Dr. Stidham was obviously a major bone of contention between the prosecution and the defense. During his opening statement, defense attorney Stortz told jurors that they would call an expert who would testify that Dr. Stidham died between 9 p.m. and 10 p.m. on October 5th. Mr. Stortz said the difference in time was critical to proving his client's innocence because Dr. Schwartz and Bruce Bigger had alibis for that period of time. The prosecution also called several of Dr. Schwartz's former girlfriends and acquaintances to the stand who testified that Dr. Schwartz told them that Dr. Stidham was going to die. Dr. Schwartz had asked people to plant child pornography or illegal drugs in Dr. Stidham's office, and he also asked a patient's mother to falsely accuse Dr. Stidham of sexual assault. Dr. Schwartz asked another woman to falsely accuse Dr. Stidham of fondling her child. Other alternatives were breaking his fingers or throwing acid in his face. He also suggested gouging out his eyes. Wow. Yeah, so he did not want this guy to be able to practice surgery anymore. Dr. Schwartz wanted Dr. Stidham humiliated and his practice destroyed. When Dr. Schwartz could not find anyone to help him, that is when he started looking for a hitman. In February 2004, eight months before the actual murder, Dr. Schwartz paid somebody $5,000 to kill Dr. Stidham. Ironically, the hitman himself was killed before he could do the job for Dr. Schwartz. Kath, the crazy thing is that the hitman he hired for five grand was former prosecutor Lourdes Lopez's ex-husband and the father of her children. Totally twisted. But here's the thing. Nothing I read threw any shade at Lourdes Lopez for assisting Schwartz in hiring her ex-husband. So there was no connection made in anything I read or watched. Well, maybe she didn't know. If they were divorced, maybe she wasn't aware of it, but right. Dr. Schwartz just knew him because of their personal relationship. Right, but how nuts is that connection? That's absolutely crazy. Yeah. So, Kath, through all of this, what is coming out during the testimony is that Dr. Schwartz saw Dr. Stidham as being the reason for everything bad that had befallen him. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing, Kath. It's like Dr. Schwartz, to his credit, built a successful medical practice to the point he was able to lure a Harvard physician to assist him. Right. But through his own actions, things went to hell in a handbasket and Dr. Stidham's practice eventually wound up thriving. So 
A lot of bitterness. And one other quick thing, Kathy, that I read, and I thought this was super interesting talking about hiring the hitman, is that if you'll recall Lisa Goldberg, she was... His date that night of the murder. Right. Mm-hmm. And when she provided information to the police about Bruce Bigger to help them, you know, find the hitman Dr. Schwartz had hired, she testified that the police had asked her to wear a wire and go meet Dr. Schwartz. And so she agreed, but she said as she was going to meet him, she realized she still had feelings for him. So Ms. Goldberg wrote out a note that she gave to Dr. Schwartz when she walked up to him for this meeting Mm -hmm. that said she was wired and the police had already talked to her about him. Wow. Yes. Now, it turns out that she got a lawyer right after that, which was probably a very smart move. Mm -hmm. And she was able to cut a deal with the prosecutor's office that in exchange for her testifying against Dr. Schwartz at trial, she would not be prosecuted for hindering an investigation. The testimony of Lourdes Lopez caused significant controversy. In the months leading up to the trial, the judge determined what evidence was going to be admissible and not admissible, right? Each side does what we call motions in limine, and the judge agrees or disagrees. Each side is trying to exclude bits of evidence. Judge Warner ruled that the jurors could be told that Dr. Schwartz temporarily lost his medical license due to a prescription drug problem but they could not be told about his 2001 indictment on federal drug charges because the information was too prejudicial and the judge did not want it held against the defendant during trial. However, almost as soon as Ms. Lopez takes the stand, defense attorney Stortz has to continually object to the questions from the prosecution and answers that Ms. Lopez was trying to get out. The defense attorney also had to continually ask for bench conferences in order to privately discuss the testimony that was being elicited. So how would we describe this attorney's actions at this point? He was hopping up and down. He was hopping (laughs) up and down. (laughs) So at various times during her testimony, Lourdes Lopez tells the jurors that Dr. Schwartz was court-ordered into rehab. And she was about to tell the jurors that he had to perform community service before she was stopped. Then she testified at one point that she was contacted by federal prosecutors to discuss a DEA investigation of Dr. Schwartz. She also told the jury she had to quit the county attorney's office because she knew she was about to be indicted. Basically, her testimony is going up to the line. Yeah, she is skating a fine line on that. Exactly. So defense attorney Stortz is freaking out. No wonder he was hopping up and down. Exactly. Then the prosecutor, Richard Platt, asked Ms. Lopez to tell the jurors why Dr. Schwartz hated Dr. Stidham so much. Ms. Lopez asked Platt if he wanted the whole set of circumstances. So this is the final straw for the defense attorney. There's been too much implication, too much innuendo, too much traveling in one direction against the court's order. So he throws a fit and requests that the judge declare a mistrial. So the jurors were sent out of the courtroom and Judge Warner had a conversation with counsel behind closed doors. After the discussion, the judge allowed defense attorney Stortz to question Lourdes Lopez about whether or not she had ever been told by prosecutors about Judge Warner's ruling preventing testimony about Schwartz's indictment. Ms. Lopez said no. She told defense attorney Stortz that she had only been told by the prosecutors not to tell the jurors that her former husband had been murdered. The former husband who was the hitman? Exactly. Okay. Ms. Lopez also told defense counsel 
that she never received copies of Judge Warner's rulings. After this questioning, Judge Warner took the motion for mistrial under advisement. The next morning, the judge denied defense attorney Stortz's request for a mistrial. In her written decision denying the motion, Judge Warner said that no actual testimony was given by Lourdes Lopez involving Dr. Schwartz's indictment. Nor did Ms. Lopez reveal any information about the outcome of the federal drug case. As a result, Judge Warner said there was no violation of her order not to tell jurors about Schwartz's indictment. Concluding their case, the prosecution brought to the stand an Arizona Department of Public Safety criminalist, Curtis Reinbold, who testified about the partial DNA sample taken from Dr. Stidham's car and determined it was consistent with Ronald Bruce Biggers' DNA. Reinbold told the jurors that one in every 20 million white people have the same partial DNA profile found in Dr. Stidham's stolen Lexus. When the defense began their case on April 4, 2006, they brought a DNA expert to the stand who agreed that Bruce Bigger shared the partial DNA profile, but testified that it is one in approximately every 1,300 white people who have the same profile, making it a much smaller likelihood that the DNA belonged to Bigger. The defense also brought Dr. Philip Keene, the appointed Maricopa County Medical Examiner, to the stand. Dr. Keene testified that he was able to determine Dr. Stidham's time of death was between 9 and 10 p.m. on October 5, 2004. This, of course, being very different than the Pima County Medical Examiner, Dr. Winston, who testified that he could only determine a 12-hour window in which Dr. Stidham was killed. Seven weeks after trial began, defense counsel announced that Dr. Schwartz would not be taking the stand in his own defense. A week later, jurors heard closing arguments. According to an article in the Arizona Daily Star written by journalist Kim Smith, prosecutor Sylvia Lafferty said Dr. Schwartz was like a homicidal energizer bunny that just kept going and going and going in his quest to find a hitman, and he ultimately succeeded. Defense counsel Stortz told the jury the state did not prove its case and urged the jurors to find his client innocent of the charges. After listening to the testimony of 77 witnesses and looking at more than 400 exhibits, the case went to the jury late in the afternoon on April 25, 2006. After five days of deliberation, the jury found Dr. Bradley Schwartz guilty of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. However, they were unable to reach a unanimous verdict on the count of first-degree murder, and a mistrial on that charge was declared. Dr. Stidham's sister, Andrea Dupuy, and his mother, Joyce Ann Stidham, were in the courtroom every day. After the verdict was read and after the jurors left the courtroom, Dupuy thanked the prosecutors and the jurors for giving up two months of their lives to see that justice was served. She also thanked the community for its support in the wake of her brother's death and for making his final years happy ones. She and her mother declined to answer any questions from the media. After the verdict was read, several jurors met with the media. They said that with regard to the first-degree murder count, they would have liked more direct evidence than just circumstantial. The contradictory DNA evidence was also a big factor, as well as the fact that it did not make sense to them to convict Dr. Schwartz for murder when he was proven to be miles away at the time. As for their decision to convict Dr. Schwartz for conspiracy, 
jurors said it came down to the civilian witnesses who testified, specifically the sheer number of women who testified that Dr. Schwartz hated Dr. Stidham and wanted him to be harmed or killed. Four weeks later, Dr. Stidham's widow Daphne stood before Judge Nanette Warner before she announced Dr. Schwartz's sentence. Daphne said, I do not think I can forgive this kind of evil ever, at least in this lifetime. What Bradley Schwartz took away from us is what we needed most, our future. With that, I am asking you to keep him in prison forever with no parole. Daphne left before the sentence was imposed. In Arizona, however, a conviction for conspiracy to commit first-degree murder does not provide the option for a sentence of life without parole. Instead, Judge Warner sentenced Dr. Schwartz to life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. The judge also revoked his medical license and ordered him to pay more than $13,000 in restitution. The first-degree murder trial of Ronald Bruce Bigger began in March of 2007 with the same judge presiding. As you can imagine, many of the witnesses were the same, and on May 16, 2007, a jury convicted Ronald Bruce Bigger of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit the murder of Dr. Stidham. He was sentenced to concurrent life terms without the possibility of parole for both counts. Both Dr. Schwartz and Bruce Bigger appealed their convictions, and all their appellate efforts were unsuccessful. Both men are currently incarcerated at Lewis Prison in Arizona. Going back to Dr. Stidham's family, in March of 2005, so five months after the murder, Dr. Stidham's widow Daphne filed a $20 million claim against Pima County. In her claim, Daphne specifically named three people, Pima County attorney Barbara Lawall, her former deputy Paul Skitsky, and former prosecutor Lourdes Lopez. In the lawsuit, Daphne alleged that months before her husband was murdered, Ms. Lopez knew about the murder plot and told Mr. Skitsky, who still worked in the prosecutor's office, but he did nothing about it. So, Kath, this was after she had left the prosecutor's office in shame. A few years after. Yes, exactly. Been under federal indictment, had her law license suspended for a bit. She was still obviously in touch with Dr. Schwartz. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So seven months before Dr. Stidham was murdered, Ms. Lopez was told by Dr. Schwartz that he had hired a hitman and that Dr. Stidham's murder was going to be committed by one or two people and it was either going to look like a robbery or a carjacking. Rather than call the police or an investigator or somebody else who could have prevented this, Ms. Lopez instead called her former colleague, Paul Skitsky, and said to him, hey, I found out that this is going to happen. You need to make an anonymous call to Dr. Stidham and tell him that there's this plot out here so he can take steps to protect himself. Mr. Skitsky never did anything. And then in the lawsuit claimed that he did not remember this conversation at all. Right. Skitsky said, well, I remember her mentioning Dr. Schwartz's name maybe once, but she never told me about what was being plotted against Dr. Stidham. Right. On October 9th, 2007, after Dr. Schwartz and Bruce Bigger had both been convicted of her husband's murder, Daphne Stidham agreed to a $2.29 million settlement with Pima County from the lawsuit she had filed two and a half years prior. One month after the settlement, Lourdes Lopez was disbarred by the Arizona Supreme Court. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. 
If you liked us. And hopefully you did if you stayed this long. Exactly. Tell a friend. And follow us on our social media channels. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Destinations Podcast. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.